everyone. I'm Joey Dumont, and this is True 30, where we take on the day's most divisive political topics and analyze them through the lens of slow journalism. Our collective goal is to help people better understand one another, not win a battle. After listening, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. Today, we're discussing the power of words and messages with Rich Klein. Rich Klein is managing partner, McClarty Media, managing director, Middle East and North Africa. Rich was part of the 1992 Clinton-Gore presidential campaign, helping to craft policy and messaging on emerging global issues. He was subsequently appointed by President Clinton to head the speechwriting staff and be part of the policy planning office at the Department of Commerce, reporting directly to secretaries Ron Brown, Mickey Cantor, and Bill Daley successively. From the Commerce Department, Rich was appointed by President Clinton to serve as Special Assistant for International Affairs at the Department of State, the Bureau charged with monitoring and enforcing international economic sanctions. Early in his career, Rich was a reporter for U.S. News and World Report magazine. He holds a bachelor's degree in political science and international studies from Brandeis University, a graduate degree in Middle East security policy from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and completed classwork at the Foreign Service Institute, the State Department's School for Advanced Policy and Diplomacy Study. I hope you learned as much as I did. Cheers. Well, there we are, Rich Klein. Thank you for joining me on True 30 this morning. Really appreciate your time. Happy to be here, Joey. Good to see you. So per our brief chat off camera, uh, I I mentioned I wanted to talk to you specific to your tenure in the world of politics, specifically your past role as head speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, as well as your duties on policy planning for the State Department and the Department of Congress. And as I shared with you briefly, albeit, uh, I come from the world of advertising and marketing, so I too understand the power of words specific to messaging and storytelling. And during a recent interview with Juan Williams from Fox News, we talked about this exact thing with regards to the Dems being really bad at messaging, controlling the narrative, and for decades. So he agreed on that. We had some kind of, you know, Joshua going back and forth there. And so let me ask you this. Um, I've read quite a bit of literature on the GOP getting their shit together after Nixon's loss to JFK. Not just the telegenetic side, but the Heritage Foundation, kind of grew more powerful, and then even more so during the Reagan administration, specific to messaging, marketing, narrative, control, those kind of things. So why don't we just start there, sir? What are your thoughts on this, specific to the Dems not understanding how to frame a narrative or control uh, the story? You know, um, th there's a good story to tell for Democrats, uh, not yeah. just what this White House has accomplished, but core values that they kind of reflect the majority of the country's point of view. Uh, and yet, I, I think that the democratic messaging machinery so overcomplicates, so overthinks, and so overexplains when, when the strength is talking to people like grownups and talking to people um, eye to eye around their kitchen table. Mm -hmm. um, I, I you know, what, one of my early mentors uh, was David Gergen, who David was a veteran of the Reagan White House and then went to work for President Clinton. And, and in his book, Eyewitness to Power, one of the things he spends a lot of time talking about is IQ versus EQ. Hmm. Presidents who were highly intelligent and had high IQ, and those who may not have been recognized intellectually, but had had high emotional quotient and had, had high EQ. Mm -hmm. And his essential point was somebody like Richard Nixon was remarkably smart and could see complicated issues and, and break them down to the fundamentals, but could not escape his darker instincts. And so there was high IQ and not high EQ. And I kind of feel like that's where Democrats are stuck right now. Very smart, hmm. not able to relate it and to connect it to people. Something you and I had talked briefly about is the, the phrase defund the police. Correct. Dumbest thing possible. No community <laughs> in America wants to see yeah. their police doing without. Right. But police reform, law enforcement reform is a legitimate topic of conversation. And we should talk about how to prepare police to better involve themselves in different scenarios, train them better bring in more diverse points of view and skill sets, de-escalate. But it all became about that slogan, defund the police. And it basically handed the right a gift 
a hammer to just bludgeon Democrats with as being soft on crime. When, if you actually talk about it in logical ways, trying to less militarize the police, trying mm-hmm. to have, I mean, the most dangerous thing for police is to be called into a domestic violence situation. That takes a specific skill set to de-escalate and to handle. And it's not necessarily coming in with, with a show of force. But the phrase took on a life of its own and the debate was gone. And so my frustration, by and large, is overcomplicating and overexplaining. Well, that's a good point. So let's look at it this way. The Biden administration is responsible for three enormous bills in the last two years. The $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package, the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is obviously very impressive, and the summer's climate and health spending bill. And these are all in the first two years of the Biden administration. One thing they're doing a pretty good job of announcing, which I was blown away by and very happy about, was the Eli Lilly announcing that they lowered the cost of their incident by 70%, capping it at $35 a month. And this was also driven by the momentum of the Inflation Reduction Act, which again, naming-wise, <laughs> may not have been the best name, right? So it's like, what are your thoughts on the fact that, you know, and then beyond these headlines, if you look at, he made background checks easier on gun safety bill. He made it easier to prosecute illegal gun trafficking. He provided federal funding for the so-called red flag laws, which actually attribute to that. They also passed the CHIPS Act to boost domestic production of semiconductors, which we all just experienced, you know, specific to all the international turmoil and what's going on with uh, Taiwan. And, And there's all these different pieces. These are really big things, you know, and we don't hear a lot about them. And as you know, I read, write and report on politics every day and I don't see it. So, Not only are they big things, but they've already led to some big, uh, big moments. You've got you've got uh, EV car battery factories opening in at least three states that I know of. You've got yes. multiple chip factories opening domestically. Those are directly connected to these legislative accomplishments. So two things: talk about it in terms of job creation. Talk about it at ground level. The construction that's going to happen. The skills and knowledge transfer. The, the economic impact. Mm-hmm. Talk about it in real factual ways, not in slogans. And, and, you know, and the other thing is to then connect that to kind of a, a larger adult conversation about trade. I mean, the fact mm-hmm. is, for the U.S., trade's a pretty good deal globally, right? We yeah. sell the world supercomputers and Boeing aircraft, and we import sneakers and T-shirts and cell phones. But jobs in this country that export are terrific. They, they pay well. They're, they're high skill. We should be talking about how we gain from trade. But it sort of goes to defining the debate, right? I mean, why is it that Democrats in the 80s let the word liberal simply become a bad word instead of standing up and defending it and saying, well, Good look, if, you, if you're telling me that being liberal means caring about civil rights and public education and the environment and clean air and clean water, then call me liberal. I mean, that, that's the way to respond to this, not to kind of you know, pull your, yourself into your shell and hope that it'll pass because it won't. And so all of those pieces of legislation that this White House has done a great job on, they should be talking about it in day-to-day common sense ways. And by the way, they should be sharing the credit. I don't understand the zero sum game that says I cannot give the other party an ounce of credit for an accomplishment that helps everybody. When I was working in the Senate, uh, I was working for Jay Rockefeller, who was a Democrat from West Virginia. And there was an aggressive bipartisan effort to take on the subject of health care reform. Now, this was this was the late 90s, the mid 90s. And you had Democrats and Republicans who all agreed there's a problem and then needed to figure out how to solve it. And then there was some public polling data that showed that credit for solving health care issues in America would accrue heavily to Democrats. And Republicans immediately changed their, their tune in the conversation, denied that there was a health care crisis in America, and stopped working in a bipartisan way on health care reform. That is a uh, an effort that would have benefited everybody in this country, urban and suburban and rural across every demographic line. But because one side was afraid that it would lead to an electoral disadvantage, the other, it, it never went anywhere. And that's why we, we now live in a country where we seem to be unable to tackle tough challenges because 
The moment it becomes something that might benefit the other party, it's dead on arrival. And so the whole country suffers for that. And that's only gotten worse since your Much time worse. with Jay Rockefeller, right? Much worse. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I worked in the Senate, um, you know, you had these kind of strange bedfellow relationships even before I was in the Senate. I mean, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill had this, this really warm friendship. Famous could, friendship, yeah. Right, and Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch. I mean, Ted Kennedy credited Orrin Hatch with essentially saving his life, with, with getting him to think about his legacy, think about his, his, the way he was perceived publicly, and become a more serious senator. And he became one of the great legislators of, of the era. Even Barack Obama and John Boehner could quietly go yeah. have a beer. I mean, Boehner was funny about it. Boehner was, is a notorious chain smoker. And he would tease Obama, and he did it publicly as well, that Obama wouldn't have a cigarette with him, even though he was dying to, because he knew <laughs> Michelle Obama would be mad at him. But that kind of personal rapport is the way yeah. you go into a corner, quietly figure out what a resolution is, so that everybody gets enough to be happy and nobody gets everything they want. And that's how democracy works. And those guys aren't there anymore. And my personal theory, when I worked in the Senate, you know, you had you had giants there. You had Strom Thurmond, who resigned from a state legislative seat to enlist in the Marines and who landed at Normandy. You had John Chafee from Rhode Island, who withdrew from Yale to enlist in the Marines and fought at Guadalcanal. Yet Bob Dole, you know, who lost half of his shoulder in Italy. Right. I mean, these guys, they may not have agreed philosophically and politically and ideologically. But they didn't demonize each other. And they knew, based on their years of service to the country and serving in the military with people with very different backgrounds and def very different personal stories, they knew uh, the kind of center of gravity that democracy required. And it was about compromise. And those guys are gone. And I had looked about 30 years ago, almost 80% of the Senate had some sort of military service background. Now it's less than 20%. Now I'm not wow. saying you have to. You, I am not saying you have to have served in the military in order to be a good public servant, but I am saying that some sort of sacrifice for the national good is the right orientation if you want to be in government. It is not about personal interest. It is not about just your backyard. It is about national interest, and we don't have those guys right now, and we suffer for it. Do you think part of this problem, and I don't exactly, and you probably do know this, but when did it take place where? congressmen no longer lived in D.C., but they actually moved back to their home states. Because there's a piece of this to me, you know, as a businessman that knows the power of relationships, the power of a dinner, the power of in-person meetings, of actually being in the same room together for a longer period of time. And, and you look at that and think, all right, are they building relationships when they're so actual, not just distance on the ideology side, but they're actually distance on a geography side. They're not together anymore. You know, Tip and Ronald would live, hang out together, and, and right. Orrin and right. I mean, they all did that. So, is there it, is there something you said there? It's always been a push pull, right? I yeah. mean, when members of Congress are in Washington and in session, they think they're away from home too much. But then, when they're in recess and they get to go home, they're criticized for not working enough. Right. The other real legitimate complaint is that Washington D.C. is an extremely expensive city to live in. And for a lot of these guys, in order to maintain their, their residence in their home district and do all the things that you have to do uh, as, as a husband or a wife uh, and a father or a mother, you need to save for the future. You want to take care of your kids. You want to save for college if you can. It yeah. is hard to do all of those things and have a second rent in a high cost city like Washington. Yeah, good point. So, so it, it, it's it's. A lot of them, a lot of members don't live very comfortably here. When my family and I lived on Capitol Hill, there was, there was a house across the street that five members of Congress had. It was a three-bedroom house falling apart. Um, <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. It was on Maryland Avenue, and it was the way they could afford to live there. In the past, you've had members who live in their offices who have pull-out couches and a closet in their office, and they go down to the gym to shower, and that's how they live. That's not really conducive to spending a lot of time in Washington. And so yeah. you get on the plane and you go home to your district, which you should spend time there. Yes. But you yes. also should spend time here getting to know your colleagues and your fellow committee members on a personal level and being able to have those quiet, respectful, rational conversations. 
and know each other's motivations and figure out how you can both get enough to go home to your constituents and tell them you've got to win for them and not shame or humiliate the other side. And so that's a big piece to this discussion that you've broached is that it is a zero-sum game politically. So if even if there's a bipartisan effort to get something passed, either side doesn't share that love publicly, right? They don't want to because they're scared of actually handing a future election to right. the other I mean, side. You know, look what happens if if you are seen as having a productive and and friendly relationship with the other party, your own party censures you. Mm-hmm. challenges you in the primary. I mean, it's considered some form of disloyalty and weakness when to me, it's being a good representative. Yeah. Um, you know, go back and look that after, after the, uh, Sandy just crushed New Jersey and New York and Barack Obama flew up there to, to survey the damage, to deliver FEMA resources. And Chris Christie gave him a hug on the tarmac. Yeah crucified for that and and to chris christie's credit did not apologize for it said here's a man who was coming to my state to help my people through it through a, a catastrophe how can i not be anything but grateful that's the human element that somehow now is turned into into a weakness it's a really good point and i wanted to talk about this one later but this it begs to be talked about now <laughs> so what were your thoughts on the biden administration's response to the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. Because for me, you know, everything I read on the wonky side was that the administration did amazingly good things as far as what they were doing. Yes. But the optics of it, Biden going to Ukraine instead of going to East Palestine, Pete Buttigieg not showing up for eight days and then being a little bit aloof when he was talking to folks. And then obviously Donald Trump, you know, swooping in there and buying people cheeseburgers and Trump branded spring water. I mean, it, it, the narrative went crazy and they got hammered for it. So please, please well, let me first, know what your thoughts. You know, it's a, it, your first point is kind of really the most important one, which is that the, the government response was effective and right. And as the crisis is unfolding and more information is being learned, it is adapting. In the end, the federal government showed up and said, what do you need? What can we do? How do we clean this up? How do we protect people? How do we hold those responsible accountable? Yep. That's what's really meaningful. And then all of that gets swallowed up in this public relations debate over where is the administration? And yes, right. somebody should have been on the ground there sooner. Once the scale of this catastrophe was fully known and the yep. nature of the chemicals and what was happening to this community was, was, was coming into sharper view, it didn't necessarily have to be President Biden. I mean, right. him going to Kiev was powerful and important and, and and necessary. Yes. But the administration needed to get boots on the ground quicker. But it leads to a different topic. And I apologize for kind of taking us on a little detour here. No, rock and roll. <laughs> but part of part of why a country that elected Barack Obama twice and then immediately pivots to Donald Trump, in my opinion, is to so much of America, government is not listening and not caring. And the ugly truth in the country right now is that if you don't have a PAC or a lobby or a trade association, if you're not giving campaign money, you don't exist. And that's what was really on display in East Palestine. Members of Congress, you know, these races are so expensive. They are so tied to raising money for the next campaign. They live their lives raising funds. And if I'm in middle America and I have a member of Congress who doesn't really care about my day-to-day well-being or isn't responsive, I understand the anger. Democrats would be so smart if they simply started the conversation with, I understand why people voted for Donald Trump. Because I do. I mean, I understand so do I. the anger and the frustration of feeling so dislocated and, and so ignored. And it goes to the larger topic of money and politics and Citizens United and the need for campaign finance reform because corporations and special interests get their way in America. And people don't. They don't get the schools that they need. They don't get the environmental protection that they need. They don't get the responses to crises that they they deserve. But 
you can I mean, we see it all over the place. We see it in Norfolk Southern and rail safety. We saw it, you know, on the Texas power grid collapse. We see it with pharmaceutical mm-hmm. prices. You know, the industries that spend a lot of money in Washington seem to get their way at the expense of those people whose pipes froze and who lost their lives or whose property values are decimated or who can't drink the tap water. And that's where I think people should be directing their anger, not at government writ large, not at one party or right. the other, but really at, at, at the way money in campaigns and politics has completely skewed and, and perverted the process. And I know that was a little, a little detour, but no, if we want to talk about what was happening in Ohio there, a lot of it is a, a community that just didn't have a voice in Washington. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I recently had a, a, a former political, well, he's a political wonk, but he was, he formerly worked for the Joseph Biden uh, administration and uh, Ted Kennedy. His name is Justin Dangle, and he's a serial entrepreneur. And he started Voter.com in 2001. The interview was specifically what, what the Democrats can do to win back the working class, because that's his goal. And that's what he, that's what he wants to do with his own uh, participation and, and democracy. And when we talked about things specific to that was, do people feel like they're being seen, right? In the sense of if you're passing legislation, the $35 a month insulin bill makes total sense, right? right. Everyone can understand that. And then having loopholes closed where if your chemotherapy hits a, a threshold, you're no longer covered, right? Those things were covered. The, the Affordable Care Act, all those really good things did take care of actual people, right? And I think that that, obviously, the, they fought over that. No, but that's a perfect example, right? When you, when you talk about Obamacare, for much of the country, there's an immediate resistance. They're, they Correct. oppose it. When you then say, how do you feel about ending the loss of coverage for pre-existing conditions? When do you, how do you feel about lifting lifetime limits so that so that your coverage runs out? How do you feel about your children staying on your policy until they're 26? Everybody's for that. And yet that's Obamacare. And right. so again, talk about these things in you are exactly right. Talk about it in the ways that touch on people's lives and improve people's lives. Let's talk about immigration. I mean, my goodness, the the other day, my wife and I. Um, we're at a small beach town in Delaware for a day. Every business there has signed. They're, they're starving for, for, for help. They're starving yeah. for work. Three years now, they can't get enough. They limit their hours. They reduce the services. Isn't immigration the right way to help these companies find workers and lower their labor costs? I mean, the only way right now that they can draw workers is to keep up in the hourly wage from 15 to 17 to $19 an hour which is great for my teenage son who's going to work over the summer. But that's hard for a small business owner. But if we could talk about immigration in a way that addresses the needs for small businesses that can't hire enough people, isn't that a real world way to talk about immigration? Not stereotyping who's coming across the border, not labeling them all negatively. People want to come here and work and raise their families. And I'm not saying that we have to throw the borders open but we shouldn't make it impossible for people to legally immigrate into this country and be able to take these jobs that are going, that are empty. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect example because that is, if you look at the GOP machine on the messaging front, it's that the, we do have open borders and that the Biden administration is failing miserably on that front when the actual evidence of that is to the contrary. Right, right. But, but it's, and, and so you have two things going on here, right? You have you have the, the, the conversation or the debate framed by cliches. Mm-hmm. And then, as happened you know, with the definition of liberal, you have this that would rather just not talk about it. When the smarter thing to do is to engage in the debate on the merits of your ideas, okay? Sit down with Republicans and say, let's talk about immigration. I mean, you know, George W. Bush uh, and Karl Rove, they realized that much of America was becoming minority majority that states along the border were, were having more minority uh, uh, population and realized that immigration for the Republican Party could be a winning issue politically. And they actually tried to, tried to reform immigration. Um, now, their motivations were political, but they were willing to have the conversation. Now, the conversation seems, seems to be just to build the wall higher and farther and wider. And it doesn't matter. You know, people still get over it and around it. We'll be where we are because we're not having a substantive conversation that says, how can we promote orderly immigration? How can we 
survey and assess what jobs, what industries need to hire and help people with those skills come into this country and take those jobs. Years ago, I had visited a town, uh, Sioux City, Iowa, and it had a uh, it had a large meatpacking plant. Going through the town, almost everything was in Spanish. There were churches that were advertising services in English and Spanish. There were storefronts that were advertising in both languages. There were uh, there were calling cards that were for sale in in Spanish. And somebody said, "Look, the people working in the meatpacking plant are all." immigrants from Latin America, from Central America. Without them, we're done. Without them, this meatpacking plant closes and this town dies. Mm -hmm. But these are the people who made their way here and took the jobs and do this this very strenuous, very physically intense and sometimes dangerous work. But here's a small town, not a small town, here's a small city in Iowa that immigration saved the main employer. And I think that's not a rare story. Democrats don't seem to want to tell it. And Republicans don't seem to want to admit that it's real. It's so good. So true. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Minnesota. Said my, my brother lived in Cedar Rapids. And so I know exactly what you're talking about. From my upbringing, I grew up in rural Minnesota, about 50 miles north here. I went to high school in San Francisco. And so most of my friends from my childhood have chosen the vocations of electricians, carpenters, construction workers. They're just hardworking, amazing people. I love them all to death. I'm still friends with most of them. And they feel like they've been left behind by the Democratic Party. And that's been decades. So it's not like this just took place over the last 10 years. This is maybe since the 80s, the 90s. I mean, when I worked for Jay Rockefeller, West Virginia was a deep blue Democratic state. It was coal miners and steel workers, a union state. Now it's it's completely red and it's over, you know, basically it's it's guns and religion. and and I'm not saying that those aren't legitimate personal beliefs, but somehow, because Democrats stopped talking to these people and Republicans told them what they wanted to hear, um, here's a state who's who's I think, you know, whose living standards I don't think have dramatically improved. You know, most of the mines are gone, the steel mills are are some of them are shuttered, and to your experience, Democrats stopped talking to rural America. And by the way, forget about the politics of it. That's an important part of what makes this country strong and prosperous and stable. This idea that we've siloed ourselves and we no longer respect each other and everybody has to be has to be and think as I do is unhealthy. And and, and we see we see what's happening. You know, now we're getting into things like the repealing of the fairness doctrine and the fact that that what you now hear on public airwaves is now agenda driven and profit-driven and not information-driven. We live in, in different realities. We, we have different facts. And yeah. that is not healthy for a democracy. No, it's unheard. What year were you working with Rockefeller? Is it the 80s, 90s? I worked with Rockefeller late 90s. Okay. Because that's one of those things, too, if you look at the Democrats and beating I'm up sorry, on early Joe- 90s. Early 90s. Okay. So beating up on Joe Manchin is an example right in West Virginia. And, you know, he's a pretty easy target because him and cinema were kind of like the outliers with a lot of these bills. And he drove a Maserati, which, you know, is a little disconnected from, you know, his constituents. Yeah. But one of my favorite writers, Tim Miller for the bulwark said, Hey, you know, and for folks who don't know him, he's a former Republican strategist, really smart, smart guy. And great reporter. And I love him. And, and I loved him more after this article. And I don't remember most of it, but I remember one word where he said, Hey guys, on the democratic side, relax, slow your roll on the fact that you want to primary someone like Joe Manchin, because what you're going to get is someone called Cletus Ivermectin. <laughs> he's <laughs> he, he's going to come in and he's going to own, you know, as a Republican, right? Cause you, you're not going to get another guy like Joe Manchin in West Virginia. No. And I think that's an example of where we sit, you know, on the political front was that Joe Manchin, whether if, you know he's not progressive enough or he didn't do the things, he, but you can't just beat him up over and over and over in the messaging and game. It doesn't and, work. And, and there's no, look, if you think that Joe Manchin's motivations are insincere, then you have a problem. But I don't. I think he's trying to represent his state and its, I think so too. And its interests, which is yeah. what he is there to do. Yeah. Now, the difference is, you know, in the last administration, they kept telling the country that coal is coming back. Let's talk to people like grownups. Coal is not coming back. Right. Okay. Or naming it clean coal. Right. 
Right. But, <laughs> but should, yeah. should we then instead helping these communities transition into other things that they can survive on instead of feeding them platitudes that are never going to come true and, and building up hopes that, that, that just get dashed? The thing to do is to say, you know, nobody is promised a job for life anymore. And the role of the government is simply to help people always be employable. And then it's up to them to take responsibility for their lives, yeah. to learn the skills, to change the nature of what they can do. And that's how government should work. I mean, what we should be saying to people in, in a lot of, 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 you know, formerly industrial states is the factories are gone or, or the technology is outpaced and, and, and it takes fewer people to run this place. So we're going to help you get an education and learn new skills whether it's IT or wind turbines or how to be a dental mm -hmm. hygienist, whatever it is. Right. Now, the opportunity is there. It is up to you to take the opportunity. Not going to be easy, but let's talk to people as grownups yeah. and tell them that if they are willing to enroll in community college and take the classes and learn the skills, the government will pay their tuition and then they are employable. Because a, a job for life is gone. It, 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 it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a fiction now. But we should be making sure that people can always be employable. And again, it's up to them to then make the most of the opportunity. I agree on that front. So in that sense of trying to figure out how we better connect with our public, specifically Democrats in this case, what are your thoughts on the student relief package specific to student forgiveness on college debt? Because one of the things that I hear this from my friends, you know, who I grew up with, who are, again, craftsmen. And, and they chose a vocation over college. 24% of our population has student debt. About half of that went to private universities. 17% of that debt uh, is from private nonprofit universities. And then the other 34% is postgraduate degrees. So let me just say this first. My brother is a, a law professor adjunct, and he helps the indigent as a family law attorney. So he's not doing overly well financially. Right. And he's he doing has important work. He is. And so like, I think there's a lot of nuance to this, if and when you reward people for helping the community. So if yes. you gave money back to nurses, as an example, if you gave money to, you know, people who are working with the indigent or nonprofits, and I understand things like that as far as connecting with the public, but this specific piece, the student relief bill, which is about anywhere from, and I have some numbers here, but it's, I think it's, anywhere from 400 to 600 billion dollars depending on who you talk to. So the COB, the CBO comes up at right 400. Yeah, so NPR's reporting claims it's 400 billion. The New York Times talked to the CBO with 469 billion to 519 as high as 600 billion dollars. That's a very it's an staggering sum of money and if yeah. you look at who it's catered to, if 24% of our population has student debt, and then 40% of that's graduate debt. Now we're looking at go, okay, so we're looking at lawyers, investment bankers, doctors, you know, professions, right. with postgraduate degrees. We're going to bail them out. And then we collectively, we, the, the public, are going to pay for these very educated and most likely very well compensated folks. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I understand the negative reaction. I understand the sense that it is unfair, right? Yeah. That uh, there are people who saved for college. There are people that worked their way through college. There are people who sacrificed to pay off their debt. And now this leaves them out. But by the same token, I mean, college is, is too expensive in this country. And, and, the, and higher education inflation, I think, is second to healthcare inflation. It, it, it's insane how quickly prices are rising. No question. And it should not be out of reach for as much of the country as it is. Nor should going to college be a financial burden on you that makes it, you know, impossible to buy a home or start a family for the next twenty years. Right. So, is there is there a middle ground? Should it be means tested? To your other point, I mean, one of my college roommates after medical school spent a year working in a clinic uh, on a on a a Native American um, uh, in a Native American community in Oklahoma, and he did that. Uh, for a, a, a modest salary and some significant debt relief on his loans to go to med school. Yep. I have no problem with that. Me neither. I think it's do, great. We should do more of that. Yeah. But yes, somebody who has gone into debt, 
gone to college, gone to graduate school, secured a six-figure salary right out of school, three years later is, you know, is, is moving up the chain. Not sure that that is who we need to bail out or maybe not relieve as much debt versus that person with a nursing degree serving in a, you know, a neglected community. Uh, that is somebody who we should figure out how to unburden from their, from their debt. They are doing something yeah. that benefits a lot of people. So the, look, the idea that we should make college more affordable or that we should ease the, the, the debt burden on people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the idea of relieving crushing debt on people. Yes, it is in the national interest. It is in our community, community's best interests. But again, let's put a little logic and a little common sense to it. I understand why people reacted the way they did. But if, if it was more obviously and more, and more strictly means tested, or if it did come with a community service component, would it have gone down easier? Maybe. Certainly, I think everybody knows somebody who finished college with six figures of, of debt and can't buy a house and doesn't know when they ever will be able to. And that's that doesn't help anybody. No. I think that I agree with you on the means testing. And I also thought if they offered it up for vocational schools, you know, as a as a refund yep. as well. There's just it, it just could have been done better. And then politically, what I understood is that, you know, before the election, it helped him with the Democrats. Right, it helped him with young Democrats. So I understood it politically, and we live with that every election cycle. Yeah, right. Yes, we, yes. you know, it, we we in order to secure that nomination, you need to appeal to some of the more aggressive elements of your party. Yeah. Then, in order to re- win election, you need to come back to the center, and all that leads to is forty percent approval ratings, and primary challenges, and unhappy people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. And, you know, to, to our point earlier, it is that between 40 to 60 percent who consider themselves centrist or independent who really don't have a voice, uh, at least not until no. the general election, but don't really have a say in the nominating process. So, again, we, we cater to the extremes to secure the nomination and then we do our best to try to stitch it all together to, to win a general election. And so one thing Juan Williams and I from Fox News talked about was the black and brown vote and the democrats have lost ground with black voters mm-hmm. and hispanic voters recently and it's actually ratcheting it up and one thing i know just from my own uh personal experience i'm married to a chinese woman so i have 15 years of being indoctrinated into this wonderful chinese culture they're starting to move away from yep. the democratic party as well and that's I, I saw a statistic recently on that and then so like what what are your thoughts on the messaging, even with something like the student relief package? It's like a lot of those folks, <laughs> you know, didn't agree with that idea. And if the Democrats are trying to actually cater more to the working class, that seems like they went the opposite way. They did. Right. With this really big initiative. And it's $600 billion, too, is like a staggering amount of money that we just get lost as a culture and understanding what the B means, right? Someone told me before a million dollars and hundred dollar bills is stacked up to the empire state building. Million dollars. A billion dollars goes from the ground to the moon, (laughs) right? So you're looking at that's, that's just like an un, just unimaginable amount of money. It it is. And and (laughs) that's not going to the working class. We talk about these numbers like they're like they're movie special effects. Yeah, we just don't think what it takes, what it's real, and and what it what it requires. You know, go back and look at uh, at at the coverage when after the the Iraq War, and we were literally shrink wrapping pallets of cash. Nobody can tell you where that money went. I mean, no. the, billion, the billions of dollars that just gone to the wind. But the idea of watching forklifts load pallets and it's cash. Not boxes of candy or cases of beer. It's money. It's twenties <laughs> and fifties and hundred dollar bills. And there's so much of it. We need C one thirty cargo aircraft. That, that's insane. Yeah. And so you're right. I mean, people don't understand six hundred billion dollars is a lot of money, and you can do a lot of things with it. And to your point about about minority voters, you know, I think for a long time Democrats kind of thought they'll always be with us. That that's right. a vote that we have in our pocket, and I don't have to earn it, or I don't right. have to work too hard to earn it. Yep. And those days are over, and they should be over. And those communities have the right to expect better government service, 
better attention from their elected officials, better qualities of life. And it goes to, again, who has a voice in Washington? There aren't a whole lot of lobbyists running around just wanting you know, urban America to have good public schools and clean drinking water. Yeah. But if that's your priority and that's where your party is putting their, their messaging and their resources, those are voters who will be with you. Yeah, I just interviewed a young man named Gnu Roxwell, and he's a social worker in L.A. And he's a hip-hop artist, and, and I found him, I read an article about him, so I <laughs> called him and invited him on the show to talk about just his attention and love for foster kids on probation. He's just a mensch, really good man. And the conversation actually moved into his teaching. He started teaching at high school in Los Angeles USD, the Unified School District. And he was explaining to me that the kids in that school district, and he didn't mention it because we didn't want to out anybody, <laughs> was that they walk around the halls and go to whatever class they want if they want to go at all. And because he was a hip-hop artist and he has kind of a street cred, if you will, uh, with these young men and women, people came to his class and they just kept walking in. And he's like, hey, you guys can't be in here. Like, you just can't be in here. And, and the reason I mentioned this is that I had this really nice discussion with him. And I realized when I got off the call that we're not taking care of these people, right? No. This We're just not. And this is, he said this, this particular school was mostly African-American and Hispanic and they were poor. And so if you look at that and you're like, okay, well, that's why they're not voting for Democrats, right? If you look at, we're not funding the schools, we're paying $600 billion to bail out people who have postgraduate educations. We're, we're focusing on things that don't affect me, the working class. And we're spending more time in Washington, arguing over school lunch rules than we are in the quality of education. I mean, right. there's been this, this ongoing push and pull uh, over the fact that, that the agriculture department wants to change nutritional rules for school lunch programs. Too right. many carbs, not enough fresh vegetables. Makes sense until you wind up with the frozen food manufacturers of America and, and different agriculture groups who lobby against it. But we're spending time talking about that and not talking about a more fundamental issue of why are those kids not walking into their classes and sitting down and paying attention and learning? Mm -hmm. Is it a lack of, of human resources in the school? Is it a is it a lack of leadership? Let's be honest. I mean, you know, what certain states and certain cities spend per pupil is a big difference. Yeah, And so, so well-off suburbs pay teachers more money, get better teachers in the classroom who are better at their jobs. Why should that be the, the privilege of, of, why should a good public education be, be a privilege? Right. No, it shouldn't and, be. And, 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 you know, even to that, you know, for Democrats, don't get sucked into a debate about school vouchers. Really just say we should want every public school in America to be excellent. And we should be investing in it, whatever it takes. We're a very rich country. We have money for an awful lot of things. How do we not have money to make our public schools safe, productive, successful? How do we not invest in, in, in education to a higher degree? Well, that's a wonderful question. And that's, it also is more frustrating today than it has been ever based on the fact that we all, everyone across the world, not just here in America, understood the importance of teachers after COVID, right? I, myself included, I have two kids at the time, they were you know, seven and five, and uh, they were here in my home <laughs> with me, right? And we're jumping on Zoom and, and they're, you know, fortunately for us, right? Our kids have laptops and iPads and tutors and all of that. But the majority of kids, you know, even the school my kids go to, it's a Mandarin immersion school and half of it is Chinese kids. My kids are half Chinese, but half Chinese kids. And then the other half are African-American and Hispanic. Those kids suffered so much more during the pandemic based on the fact, and it wasn't, and the schools did a good job of getting them laptops and trying to get them in, but most of them didn't have Wi-Fi. And even if they did, the parents weren't necessarily computer literate to get them on certain apps and certain programs. And when things did glitch, because they did, you know, and, or they didn't have time to be there with their children because they were working two jobs. You know, right. they were delivering stuff to my house, you know, as I ordered it on Amazon, right? So it was like, it was just such a disconnect. And after that, and I remember talking with parents and we were on PTA meetings all the time and we're just like, well, what do we need to do? And well, the good news is that we're, we're going to be really, we're going to fully for the first time appreciate teachers, 
right? And we're all going to collect in seven minutes, right? Right? And then like, and and then now we're dealing with the fallout of budget cuts. Like my oldest is going from fifth grade to sixth grade. So he's going to middle school here in California. And the MI program, the Manor Immersion program was cut from 66 to 33 kids from that transfer. And you're like, wow, okay. And so the parents are just living. Look up the number of school districts in America that have cut back to four day school weeks. Because I didn't even know that. Oh, it's massive. I I think the state of Missouri has moved from something like 60 school districts that have gone down to four day school weeks to 140. It's happening in Oklahoma. It's happening. It's happening all over the country. And the idea is teachers get four fifths of their salary. You close the building so you don't have to heat and cool them one extra day. You don't have to pay custodial staff. You don't have to pay bus drivers. How is this smart? economics. How is this a smart investment in this country? And now you've got that, you've got schools that have to cut down to four days a week. And yet you have police that have body armor and tanks and 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 SWAT teams in places they don't need them. And I'm not begrudging law enforcement having the tools it needs, but they have tools they don't need or the way they exploit uh, asset forfeiture rules uh, yeah. with arrest in order to fund themselves. How is it that 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 is our value calculation, that we're okay with schools cutting back to four days a week? It doesn't serve anybody's greater good. It doesn't serve the nation in any productive way. No. And and, and then that's just, it makes the irony all the worse in the sense that you give $600 billion to people <laughs> to pay off their education and not fund the next generation but, of thinkers but, and doers. Okay. But but let's let's take that to the next natural step. What if that 600, what if some of that 600 billion was only for teachers to help get new teachers out from under their education debt? Perfect example. Perfect example. Isn't that a great incentive? First of all, now that salary that teachers are paid, if they're not first paying $300 or $400 a month to student loans, that salary is more livable for them. That job becomes more appealing to them. Staying in that community becomes more realistic for them. The idea that you have teachers who can't afford to live in the communities where they teach, but yeah, that student debt relief, why not zero it in like a laser on on people working in education? Right. And that's the bigger piece. I think that it's, again, the Democrats historically in the 50s, 60s, and 70s were catering to the working class. That was their demographic. That's who they catered to. That's who they marketed to. That's who their messaging was for. Today, it is more elite. It is more about progressive ideologies. It is more about, hey, we're going to relieve these debt. And to your point, the problem isn't just the paying off the debt. The problem is that schools is re- just ridiculously expensive now. Universities have gone up exponentially over the last two decades yeah. to the point where it's just outlandish amount of bills. The average student debt is at $60,000 or, you know, depending on what state you go. But and it puts that education out of reach for correct. so many families. Yes. And that goes back to, both the Hispanic and the African-American population, as well as the working class, all three of those historically in the Democratic camps. And then there's also the initiative or the, also the, the discussion specific to the monoculture. So people I say, oh, blacks. Well, blacks are, they aren't a monotheism. They're just not, they're not this one big group, right? And neither right. are Hispanics. And so it's one of those things where you do have to work on the marketing messaging and storytelling. And maybe we close on this, Rich. You mentioned before, like, we need to get this back down to kitchen table, digestible chunks as far as communicating to our public. What would you, with all your background in communication and public policy, and as a speech writer, because that's obviously indicative of what we're talking about, what would you suggest the Democrats do to their comms group, (laughs) to their communication, to the public at large that, hey, we hear you, we made some mistakes, (laughs) We're working on it and we're going to be much better in the next, you know, 10 years or five years. What, you know what? I would tell them, get out of your office, get out of the city where you live, get into middle America, go take a long drive and listen to talk radio and understand what people are scared about and worried Mm -hmm. about. Years ago, there was a guy, a pollster named Al Sindlinger, who's based in Media, Pennsylvania. And Sindlinger did his polling in a very different way. Instead of asking people to check boxes, yes, no, agree, disagree, he had a wall full of phone books. 
And he would randomly pull a phone book off, open a page, find a number, and call that person and just talk to them. What keeps you up wow. at night? How's your family doing? How are your neighbors doing? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? Now, maybe in the course of a night, he would talk to eight people instead of 8,000 people you know, with a robocall. And Sellinger yeah. would compile these, these reports on, on what America was thinking. And actually, the Nixon White House tapped into it and would ask for him to share his findings and would even send people to Sindlinger's office to sit and listen in on an extension just to That's hear. Super cool. Oh, it was, it, I mean, it was awesome, right? Yeah. Just to hear. He pulled the phone book down, you know, from Paris, Texas, talked to eight people randomly. Yeah. But comes away understanding what they think about the economy, their schools. Again, what keeps them up at night? Right. That's what Democrats, you got to focus on real, real world issues, what people are living with. What's stressing them out? You know, why, why is it that this notion that our kids will not just achieve what we've achieved, but will surpass us is no longer realistic to expect because of the costs of education, because of the costs of housing. That's real America. I don't look a country that elected Barack Obama and then pivoted to Donald Trump, I do not believe is a racist or a or an angry and hateful country. I believe it is a scared country. I believe it is a, a country that feels highly insecure about the future, with good reason, mm -hmm. because we're facing these gigantic challenges. Most of the country, I think, has lived through some climate extremity that makes them think this isn't how it always was. Or again, you sit there and you figure, how am I going to send my kid to college in a way that they aren't crushed by the debt? Or how can I save for college and for retirement? Because I don't have a pension anymore. I mean, these are things that people live with. And Democrats aren't talking about it. Now, student debt relief is important. And it's, a, and, and, and it's, it's meaningful. But boy, I, I would sooner have them talk about what the American dream really means for people now. And why you suddenly have generations that think, I'm not going to be able to live the quality of life that my parents live. Because that's, that's what keeps people up at night. And if you want their vote, you better do things that help them actually close their eyes and be able to sleep. Wow, man, that's really proximate. I love it. <laughs> and that's a great example. I got to get that guy's name from you because I want to check him out. How do you spell his last name? S-I-N-D-L-I-N-G-E-R. He, he, he passed years ago. Yeah, no, um, but I got I to gotta read about him. What's his first name? There's very little out there about it. Believe okay. it or not, it, it, was, it was my old boss, Dave Gergen, who, who told me all about him. And David... Okay used to go up to, to media and, and sit and listen in on, the, on an extension and then go back and tell Nixon, here's what the country thinks. Wow. And it wasn't fit into some neat box of approve, disapprove, and strongly or, or strongly support or, or don't support. It was actually people talking about their lives. No, it was, I love it. And listening, just listening to talk radio, just to know at the local level what people are, are, are worried about or fired up about or, or enjoying. Right. That's some sage advice, Rich Klein, which I expected from you. So thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. This was a pleasure. I'll do it anytime. Thanks, sir. Cheers.